As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. This is an extremely special episode of Practice You. I have with me Dr. Edith Eager. 
She is one of my heroes. My voice is shaking, one of my personal heroes. As a woman of the Jewish faith, I have been very connected to all the events of World War II. I have been to Dachau. I've been to all the memoriams in Berlin. And I feel very strongly that this is an important conversation for all of us to hear and take in. Dr. Edith Eager was sent to Auschwitz when she was 16. After that, she was sent to two other camps. She endured several close encounters with death and other atrocities, including Dr. Joseph Mengele himself. She was rescued from a pile of corpses when the camps were liberated by the Americans. 1945. The stories of her time there, her escapes, not just during, but after the war, will bring you to tears, <laughs> as it's already happening to me. It will bring you to your knees in gratitude for your life. And it will bring you, I think, to a new understanding of what it means to be free. Edith, you are number, not one of a dwindling number of survivors who lives to talk to us. I would like to talk to you today about taking responsibility for our lives, about taking risks, about releasing ourselves from judgment and reclaiming our innocence. That is where I want to start today. As a Jewish woman, I know that this trauma has existed in some form in my own body, my own being, for all these years, and I've stood in the crematorium in Dachau. I sat in the synagogue in Budapest. I've lied on the ground at Track 17 in Berlin, weeping. I've stood in front of the former Hitler Youth Headquarters in Berlin and, and forgiven just so I could clear my own body, which I think we need to discuss today. But I felt and seen in each of these places distinct visions and sensations of our collectively shared trauma, and I'm committed to ensuring that this conversation is had. So first, I want to welcome you. Thank you so much for being here. It's so wonderful to look forward to a woman like you, who is totally committed to be an ambassador for peace and, and to find the power within us and look at life from inside out and to be able to really interview me when I am in the evening time of my life. And, mm. uh, and I hope to be a good role model like you, to mm. especially letting young people know that uh, they have a choice to be able to stay in school and to be able to change the world that we can unite and to be for something rather than against. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. This is not just about, I, I don't think this is just about survival, this, this conversation. I think about it's, it's granting our listener mm -hmm. access to important intelligence about what it means to listen well and what it means to respond well to what's happening. The opening story of The Choice, you have two books, The Choice and The Gift. The mm -hmm. Gift is more recent, but The Choice uh, is where we'll start. You spoke at the very beginning about uh, Captain Jason Fuller and how you pulled him out of his trauma. Well, he pulled himself, but you helped him to pull himself out of this trauma-induced silence that he was suffering. It speaks to the listening that is required to help others heal. And, and I want to thank you so much for that teaching. I'm also studying with Roshi Joan Halifax, and she's pointing to Simone Weil, who talks about how to really attend to something. You don't, you don't pretend like you're really listening and not really listen. You actually just wait and listen. I really appreciated how you treated that patient or client of yours in finding his own way to freedom. And I thought that might be interesting to start as an opening discussion. Yes, uh, uh, this person came to my office and, uh, and he was from the military. And uh, I could see that he was just really shaken. And I have a wonderful dog in my office, a beautiful poodle, Tess. Mm. Tess and with the military, what I do, I, uh, I, whatever rank they have, I become the higher one. In the 
uh, in the military, you give orders. You know, you don't say how you feel and what you want to talk. No, I just say, I just say, sir, we're going to take a walk. Um, And I could see that he really wanted to get out of there as quickly as he could. Here is this uh, woman with the accent and telling me what to do. But you know what? He said, yes, ma'am. And so mm. I, had, I had to move him. Otherwise, I would have taken him to the psychiatrist who would have given him Haldol. And then next thing you know, they just really shovel. They don't even walk anymore. Yeah. And it has a side effect called tardive dyskinesia that is for life. So I do everything in my power to keep people out of hospital, morgue, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Just so I can, I can do the best I can. Yes. And so he did follow orders. I could see when we came back, he was different. He was different. He was moving. Well, I ended up um, staying, and my daughter calls it EDism. So I'm going to tell you that that yes. the op- opposite of depression is expression. So I, I wanted him to talk and uh, get things out. And uh, what I did, I just provided the atmosphere like you do, that people can feel any feelings without the fear of being judged. And I did that, and it turned out that my Escada suit was wet, cried and cried and cried and gave me his gun. He was on his way to kill his wife and uh, her boss, the lover, and someone told him to come by at my office. That's how people don't come to me, they're sent to me. Well, I did fight for him, they got a divorce, and then a month later he showed up in a car. What kind of car do you think it was? Uh Uh-oh. It was a red sports car. That's what of men course. do. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the midlife crisis. Yeah, that's right. Here I am with a red, a red sports car. I'm a man. And um, so thank God. Yes, uh, people, thank God. People don't come to me. They're sent to me. You say that victimhood comes from the inside. This is a very fragile topic, and I want to make sure that my listener doesn't get upset by this because it's it's very empowering how Dr. Eager thinks about this. You wrote in The Choice, quote, yes. we become victims not because of what happens to us, but because we choose to hold on to our victimization. We develop a victim's mind, a way of thinking and being that is rigid, blaming, pessimistic, stuck in the past, unforgiving, punitive, and without healthy boundaries. We become our own jailers when we choose the confines of the victim's mind. You make it clear in this quote and in this section of the book that we're not, you aren't, we aren't blaming victims. You saw your mother, you saw all the women with the babies and the elders walked into the gas chambers upon your arrival at Auschwitz. But what you are saying is that your aim is to guide others to a position of empowerment in face of life's deepest, most traumatic hardships. And this is, I think, the, the real gift of what you give. How beautifully said, honey. The only thing I can add to that is that there is no victim without a victimizer. And victims blame. You make me angry. And so, especially when I go to schools, I tell uh, the students that the bully is going to say the word you. You are stupid and you this. And don't ever defend yourself. Just, just let it go by and say to yourself, the longer they talk, the more relaxed I become. And this is what I discovered in Auschwitz that I could not change what was outside of me. They could have put me in a gas chamber any minute. We didn't know when we took a shower whether gas or water is going to come out. But we st- I still had the choice. Uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful way of giving my life over to God. And the more I suffered, the stronger I became. 
And I said to myself, I don't like it. It's inconvenient and it's temporary and I can survive it. I never, ever really gave up. And I was able to find hope in hopelessness. Wow. Wow. You, um, you also talk in the choice about how there's no hierarchy of suffering. Mm. How you- I suffering is feelings. Yes. And in some ways, we are all victims of victims. And that's why we have to stop blaming and take responsibility uh, for, for the freedom. And that's what I do with families, writing a constitution that if you want freedom, you're going to assume the responsibility with it. And of course, it has to be age appropriate, because if you're 10 years old, I'm not going to use words like uh, cognitive dissonance. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I meet people where they are, but treat them the way I think they could be. And so I really admire you because I love the idea that uh, I was never a victim. It's not my identity. It's what was done to me. And that's a very, very big difference, especially when a woman who told me that she was sexually abused and, and how can she tell me that because I was in Auschwitz. And I told her, You know, honey, you may have been more in prison than I was because I knew the enemy. Oh. Oh. So chilling. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't compare. There is no comparison. Suffering is giving you an opportunity. The closer you get to that dark place, the stronger you become. You said, in fact, in this in this section, you said for survivors, you say it's not why me, it's what, what now. now? Yeah. yeah, I can only touch you now. I live in a present. I live in a present, and and uh, what I'm asking people to do to use this time out, just like football. I know nothing about football, but I know there is such a thing as time out. I think it's a time out for you ask yourself, what am I holding on to? What am I willing to let go of? It's time to regroup and re-decide. Give up the need for other people's approval. Mm-hmm. You, there was a moment, and I don't mean to bring this up to reiterate this, but I, I use it by way of context. That moment when you were in front of Dr. Joseph Mengele, hours before he had sent your mother to her death. Now he's asking you to dance for him and you realize that he is actually more pitiable, more pitiful than you. You realize that you are free in your mind and he will never be, that he is more of a prisoner than you are in that moment. And I, it's the same as when the little boy who, taught, who was taught to hate called you an awful slur and you're revenge fantasy has him offering a bouquet of flowers to you. Mm-hmm. I, I would love to get into this a little bit because I know so many people who are still deep in blame right now, whether it's political or it's personal, talk yeah. to us about what it means to respond to a situation that is out of our control. While you blame, you're still a child. Children blame. You know, when you ask a child, why do you do that? A child would say, because I feel like it. Children don't care about the consequences. As an adult, we still feel like it because God gives us something called temptation. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to reach for it. So don't run or fight your temptation. Just make a decision that... Do I want to be a baby or a big girl or a baby or a big boy? Because when you're a child, you sit in the back of the car and you can mess around and someone drives the car. But then I ask, would you like to be driven or do you want to be the driver? Mm. Because there's no freedom without responsibility. It's energy. Which brings me back to, well, first of all, for my listener, Dr. Eager at the tender young age of 93 is still, are you still seeing patients? 
Of course, I don't believe in retirement. Thank you. I don't either. And so you're still seeing patients. And one of the things that you mentioned in passing just then was that you have families construct what are called, quote unquote, constitutions that are personal for their family. Can you speak a little bit about that? I think it's very important to study a family. And of course, the best thing for a child is a happy marriage. Children see everything. I beg parents never to raise their voice to be able to really have a a good rule that if you do such and such, then this and this, and the children are part of the decision-making process. So the the parents are not uh, domineering, uh, but they are knowledgeable leaders. Uh, Parents are not rigid. Parents are flexible. Uh, They are able to negotiate, compromise. So it's solution orientation rather than problem orientation. I think children don't do what we say. Mm. They do what they see. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I have found that in my own family, in my own life. It is absolutely true. The... um, I want to just talk a couple more things in the choice, and then we're going to move on to the gift. The time in Gunskirchen shook me deeply. Um, you said, when the Americans finally arrive, they don't even know that you're alive. And the yes. thing that saves you is this unopenable can of sardines that your sister is holding, reflecting the light of the sun, catches the soldier's eye just as they're about to leave you in a pile of corpses. That time... After that, they they get you, they find you, they rescue you. That time of slowly coming back to life under the care of the American GIs was also extremely harrowing, moving, and a whole book in itself, I feel. But this part of the story that nobody tells, the return to life, for our listener who's trying to come back after a trauma, an illness, a heartbreak, a loss, on what should we focus? Elizabeth Kubler-Rose told us that death is the last celebration of life. What we're going to right now and what happened where I was in a place where I didn't know what's going to happen next. You see, there are two things that are going on. We were told one thing and we found another. And this is exactly what happened in Auschwitz. We were put in a place we were not prepared for, and that's what we are experiencing now. There is a difference between reacting or responding. I also tell in school the children to read or actually uh, find a movie called The Karate Kid because the best power is brain power. What you think, you create. So it is very, very important for us to cooperate, not dominate. And that's what happened in Auschwitz. All we had was each other then. And of course, all we have is each other now and how we can empower each other Mm. without differences. That you can be you, I can be I, but together we're going to be much, much stronger. So... uh, I really like to unite people, and I get the perpetrators, and I get the victims, and get together and see how you can forgive yourself, because that's really the hardest thing, Mm -hmm. to tell yourself that if I knew then what I know now, I would have done things differently, and that's the end of guilt. Guilt is in the past. Worry is in the future. I can only touch you now. Mm. So I live in a present, and I think young, but not young and foolish. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Young and innocent is different than young and foolish. I also also say that you're not a strong woman. You are a woman of strength. Thank you. That's beautiful. Look at life from inside out. Beautiful. Don't wait for someone to make you happy. I'm just going to leave a moment of pause there for all of us. Don't wait for someone to make you happy, women of strength. For PTSD, this is the one of the best parts of this book. Um, you 
talk about how you wish we wouldn't call it PTSD anymore, just PTS. Exactly. It's, it's truly, it's not a disorder. We pathologize too much. It's better to demythologize. There is no perfect life. There is no uh, perfect anything. A look at your birth certificate. There is no guarantee. There is no certainty. I think there is probability. And what kept me alive in Auschwitz was my curiosity. I always wanted to know what's going to happen next. So when people are suicidal, the older I get, the simpler I speak. You either have something what you don't want or you want something what you don't have. Mm. Mm. Wow. And as you said, the release of guilt is when you finally say, I wish I would have done things differently then, but I can't. So here we are now. You can't change the past. Yeah, yeah. Your mother said to you, I want to echo her words here for our listener. Yeah. Just remember, she said, no one can take away from you what you've put in your own mind. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Everything was taken away. Everything, everything and everything. Uh, we were there in our nakedness. And then when Dr. Mangala threw me on the other side, told me, you're going to see your mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower. And little did I realize that uh, that meant life. And when I asked this woman as she was taking off my earrings and I was bleeding and, and I said, well, I was going to give it to you anyway. There was a lot of what we call today displaced aggression. She was from Poland, and I was part of the final solution of Eichmann in 1944. Mm -hmm. So she was telling me that while I went to the theater, she was rotting in Auschwitz and took her anger out on me. And then I said, when will I see my mother? She pointed at the chimney and said, your mother is burning there. You better talk about her in past tense. I never forget that, and my sister hugged me, and she said, the spirit never dies. That's how I entered Auschwitz. With my sister, who was the pretty one in my family, we were completely naked, and we stood there in our nakedness, and my sister asked me, how do I look? Now, I had a choice then, and I like to bring the there and then to the here and now. And instead of telling Magda the way she looks, all naked, no hair, and I realized I became her mirror. Mm. So I told Magda, you know, honey, you have such beautiful eyes, and I didn't see it when you had your hair all over the place. Oh, so when you say something, I beg of you, don't say it unless it is positively uh, encouraging, kind, mostly kind. And if it's not kind, don't say it. Just don't say it. Sometimes we talk too much, and I learned, certainly in my profession, how to be a compassionate listener, especially to my inner voice, mm -hmm. and pay attention to my self-dialogue. I feel like this... This dovetails with the quote that you repeated that nobody, it's on page 157 in the choice, nobody heals in a straight line. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that the, the willingness that we have to have to respect our own inner dialogue, to speak yeah. words of kindness rather than any other thing or nothing. I feel like this, I don't know why these two things come together for me in my mind. What did you mean when you say nobody heals in a straight line? I think what is very important for us to be congruent and see what is my head telling me, what is my heart telling me, the body, mind, and the spirit, and to be able to really be connected well with myself. Because when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and say, I love me, 
I think that's a wonderful way to start a day because life is just one day. Morning sunshine is not going to be there. And I think that would be very good to really pay attention what you're paying attention to because I hope you have a goal and then decide what you're going to be able to find your own freedom. Because if uh, if you are still hating and you're still really full of anger, you're uh, still a prisoner. Mm-hmm. It's very important, you know, that uh, anger is not a primary emotion. You either vent it, suppress it, and I like to dissolve it. And I think this is very important to not run away from the past and not fight it, but to recognize that somehow, no matter how terrible it was, I'm not going to minimize it. And I decided to go back to Auschwitz after I worked with Vietnam veterans and I realized that I could not take them further than I have gone myself. Mm-hmm. And I asked my sister to come back with me to that lion's den, and she told me I'm an idiot. So you see, we went through the same experience, wow. very different responses. Wow. I think that was the best thing I did, and I created my theory, the choice therapy, that you can really hopefully revisit the places where you've been and not to get stuck in there, to go through the valley of the shadow of that, but don't camp there or set up household there. Yes. It's interesting, the work. Uh, you you got your PhD at age 50, which is how old <laughs> I am right now. Yes, my supervisor said, you know, Edie, you got to have a doctorate. I said, it's impossible. I said, impossible. Maybe be in my 50s. And he said, you'll be 50 anyway. And I mean, that's the really wonderful thing to know. Don't go for the chronological age. It's it's your attitude. It's the way you think. Yes. That's what you create. Yes. I was especially drawn to the recounting. You, you talked about a lot of your teachers also in the choice, but I was especially drawn to the recounting of the way Albert Ellis taught you about how core beliefs inform how we perceive yeah. everything, literally everything in our lives. Um, yes. Talk to us a little bit about your core beliefs now at 93, still working in practice, um, still making a gigantic impact on the families with whom you work. I usually separate beliefs from faith. You know, people tell me, I believe, I believe, I believe. What I'm really interested in, what kind of life you lead. Because love is not what you feel, is what you do. And if you, if you are a parent, especially daddies, I tell them, you're the role model to the children, the way you treat their mother. So, so you bring her a nice cappuccino in bed and, and that you, you truly are a family of faith and And I had faith in Auschwitz, in the God that guided me to change hatred to pity. And I truly prayed for the guards. If I would have died, chances are you're going to find me that way. But I never told anyone because they would have thought of me as a traitor. Because when Mm -hmm. they they took my blood and I asked... um, why do you take my blood? And he told me that I'm taking your blood to aid the German soldiers so we can win the war and take over the world. I spoke German fluently those days. So I couldn't yank my arm away. But you know what I said to myself? With my blood, you're never going to win the war. What do you mean? You know, I was a ballerina and a gymnast. So you see, it's very important to learn how to respond rather than react. When you react, you shoot from the hip. And it's usually better to take a deep breath and say to yourself, I'm practicing my low frustration tolerance level. Whoa. That. I would like to repeat, 
when I find myself next in a frustrating situation, I am practicing my low frustration tolerance level. <laughs> thank you. Whatever you practice, you become better at it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have to see page 173 in the choice. I made a note to myself. We have to see what causes and maintains certain behavior so that we can choose what we keep and what we release. This is kind of how we learn how to be, as you say, kind and loving parents to ourselves. Yeah. Um, this is how we learn to stop passing down beliefs and behaviors. This is how we learn that love is always the answer in the end. And it was Richard Farson that you pointed to who taught you the calamity theory of growth, mm -hmm. that the crisis situation improves us as human beings. Can you speak a little bit to that? It all boils down that we are born and then we die and there is something in between called life. I think we are given the choice to be able to be for something. And I know that one of my patients was running a marathon and then somehow she stopped and she didn't think that she can go further. But she ran into my office. I did it, Dr. Eager, I did because what you said. And I asked, what did I say? I said, you said, yes, I am, yes, I can, yes, I will. And I did it. I said to myself, yes, I am, yes, I can, yes, I will. And I did it. I did it. I didn't come in first, but I didn't stop either. I did it. When people come and tell me I can't do that, I run into the classroom. I am a former teacher myself, and I put I can't, and that equals I am helpless. And then I take the apostrophe and the T, I can. Why? Because I think I can. Mm. See? Mm. I, I can be very dramatic, too, because in Gunskirchen, I experienced cannibalism. Oh. And when people were eating other people's flesh, mm. I think you have to watch the sound of music. When she is singing in the most wonderful nature that is, and God asked me to look down and I had grass to eat. And imagine me sitting and and choosing even then one blade of grass over the other. Mm. So when my little granddaughter was in a class that the IQ studied at 145, I went to visit that class and a teacher called my granddaughter, my little red caboose. And uh, I don't like labels. Mm -hmm. But my granddaughter was a perfectionist, and she would erase things uh, 10 million times, and she was ready to pack up and get out of that class because she did not think that she qualifies. And that's when I spoke to my granddaughter about Auschwitz, that no one has the right to label you. Right. And the teacher has no right. And anyway, what I did worked because she went back to school. She was at Bishop's in La Jolla, one of the finest schools. And when it came to apply for colleges, you have to write your autobiography. And guess what's the title? The Little Red Caboose. When the caboose became an engine. <gasps> and yes, yes. She graduated from uh, Princeton. Uh, she wrote uh, mm. her thesis on my, the grandma, and, and she got a PhD at UCLA, and now she's a doctor, a professor of psychology, of course. What else? So, <laughs> Bravissima. Calamity theory. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Never give up. Find a gift in everything. So beautiful. Um, you speak also a lot about living, you have this choice, living to avenge the past or living to enrich the present. And this yeah. is a perfect example of that. There are so many people I know who are still mad at their teacher for saying this or that thing. Yeah. Yeah. Enrich the present. 
Yeah, you just uh, let it go by. Don't take it personally and uh, never defend yourself because you're going to be defeated. Just say thank you for your opinion. You know, we still have free speech and just uh, say something like, thank you for your feedback. Mm. Just be polite, be polite, but do not say if someone maybe tells me, I know I had someone in Texas because I was sent into the hospital to help a patient with insomnia. And that's the time when I was practicing hypnosis. I don't do it now. So I talked and talked, and, and he said to me, why don't you go back where you came from? You're crazy. You're an immigrant. You have no right to be here. Mm. So when I left, I said, Mr. Smith, I do not allow you to go to sleep until 1 o'clock. The next morning, the, <laughs> the nurse called me. What did you do, Dr. Eager? The patient <laughs> went to sleep 10 o'clock. So this is called a paradox. You know, and this is what I learned from many, many people. And uh, and I think it's it's, you know, you prescribed um, this. And Viktor Frankl was really an expert in it himself. And especially when a person is afraid of the audience because he's gonna or she's gonna flush the face. So he is giving them the prescription that you have to be the best flusher in this whole wide world. Mm. And I had I had a someone in the hospital, and he didn't want to go to Vietnam, and he went to this uh, group of people. And he wanted to stutter, and the harder he tried, it didn't. It didn't come. <laughs> so don't try to do yes, anything. Yes, of course. You know, just either do it or you don't do it. It's very important the way uh, you speak to yourself because it changes your whole body chemistry. That's probably the most valuable thing that any of us can hear right now. The way we speak to ourselves. I have a lot of friends who are going through cancer treatment now in their 40s and 50s. And you spoke about a patient, Agnes. We're going back to the choice. It was around page 190, 193. She has a breast cancer survivor, recurring dream of being a surgeon, the exercise of, you walked her through the exercise of having her turn herself inside out, write down one sentence of what she's afraid to say to each member of her family. And then, and this is what I want you to listen to, my listener, if you're going through treatment, or if you're not even, hello, make yourself small, crawl into your own body, and place hands on each part lovingly. Literally bring love everywhere Yes. to your body. Can you speak just a brief moment about that? Yes, yes. You know, you, you kind of just say hello to your lungs. To say hello to your heart, say hello to the tummy, and uh, most of all, they say the liver, because liver and the heart are very important, because you live to love and you love to live. That's um, supposed to be um, the way it goes, the way we are built. So it's very important to become a good mommy to you. Yes. Because you cannot give what you don't have. Self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. Thank you for that. Page 136 of The Gift. You say, when we've been hurt or betrayed, it isn't easy to let go of the fear that we'll be hurt again. Fear's favorite words are, I told you so. I told you you'd regret it. I told you it was too risky. I told you it wouldn't turn out well. And we hate to disappoint our hunches. So, so well said. We hold on to fear, thinking vigilance will protect us. <laughs> but then fear becomes a relentless cycle, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And a better protection, in your humble opinion, against suffering is to know how to love and forgive yourself, to be safe for yourself, to not punish yourself for the mistakes and hurt and pain that are inevitable parts of mm -hmm. life. And just to say, if I knew then what I know now, my parents had tickets to come to America and they never used it mm -hmm. because we didn't know what's going to happen. 
So you must be very kind to yourself and just look at your birth certificate. It doesn't say life is easy. There is no guarantee. There is no certainty. There is probability. Mm. And start with you because the only one you will have for a lifetime is you. All other relationships will end. Mm. Dependency breeds depression. You want to have a healthy uh, dependency. You can be too dependent or too independent. And, of course, it's better to have interdependence, which, mm. which I know that you are practicing very much. But everything begins with you. You get either pink marbles or blue marbles. And, you know, if you take a baby into the grocery store and cover it in a blue blanket, that baby will get different attention than the baby with the pink blanket. Guess who gets to be picked up more? Mm. The little girl. The little girl. The little girl gets different messages. A little boy gets a message that you're going to become somebody. You're going to become a lawyer, a doctor. Um, Okay, the little girl said, you're nobody until somebody loves you Mm -hmm. and somebody will pick you and you're going to find somebody. No, I think those messages belong to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. You are a somebody. I am a somebody. It's nice to have someone in my life. It's very nice to have someone to go to dance with, but not without someone. I am I am a nothing. And that happens a lot of the time when a husband brainwashes his wife that without him, she's nothing. And she buys into it. Mm. So I built a lot of transitional living centers for battered wives. And you know what? She goes back to him. Wow. She leaves and and studied that. Anywhere from seven to 15 times, she still believes that the answer is going to come from him. Wow. So women need to get together and and have their voice and knowing that uh, now we need to look at the pioneer woman in America who worked alongside of her husband. And not until the industrial society, when women became uh, totally dependent emotionally and financially on a man, when wife beating began. So we got to go and really start examining history. That the pioneer woman, I usually talk to Jewish people when I tell them to watch Fiddler on a Roof for sure because the woman makes her husband feel that he makes all the decision on the world, and guess who makes the decision? She just doesn't have any ego needs. She's always looking at what is good for everyone, right. rather than the me, me, me. And when I danced for Dr. Mengele, and he gave me a piece of bread, I could have eaten it up right away, and thank God I didn't. I climbed up, we were on the top, and I I shared my bread. And when we were in a death march, going from Mauthausen to Gunzkirchen, if you stopped, you were shot right away. And the girls that I shared the bread with Mm. carried me so I wouldn't die. All we had was each other then, and all we have is each other now. My last two questions and sort of discussions with you are about hope and forgiveness. And on page 172 of The Gift, you talk about how, a couple things, you talk about how you came to America after surviving Auschwitz and communist Europe. And you find, you come to America, the land of the supposed free, and you discover Mm -hmm. that bathrooms and drinking fountains in the factory where you're working in Baltimore are segregated. You mm-hmm. speak about how you'd fled hate and prejudice only to find more prejudice and hate. Cut to the writing mm-hmm. of The Gift. A few months later, you, a few months after, rather, you started working on this newest book. The, it was the last day of Passover. An armed man walks into an Orthodox synagogue near San Diego where you live, opened fire, killing one congregant. 
and you find yourself working with one of the survivors of the synagogue shooting a few weeks before he started his first year of college. You talk about how, we're on page 173 now in The Gift, you talk about how there were so many options available to this kid. He's basically, the morning of the shooting, he's trying to decide which college to attend. His father stays in the sanctuary to hear the reading of the Torah. He sits in the front foyer of the synagogue. And he sees out of the corner of his eye a man enter the building. He sees the gun. He sees the bullets flying. He sees the woman falling to the ground. He mm. runs. He jumps up to flee but right before he ran. And the gunman noticed him and started running after him, cursing at him. He found an empty room, dove under a desk, pressed himself against the desk. The gunman retreats. The whole situation ends. His father finds him you know, later pressed against the desk and not breathing basically. And says, you know, the gunman has left this, this thing is over. He couldn't move from there. And you kind of gave him the, the reason for being, you taught him that the experience is never going to leave him were the words that you said, the flashbacks and panic usually don't go away. You said, but that's not a disorder. And to, just to harken back to what you said, let's call it PTS instead of PTSD. It's a normal reaction. And he'll never overcome what he witnessed, you taught him. But you also taught him that he can come to terms with it. And he can use it, as we can use everything in our lives, to fuel growth and purpose. That is the definition, I think, of hope. Thank you. Thank you. So beautifully said uh, how you... Never, ever give up. And I know that my ancestors uh, didn't have it as good as I do. And they had to walk the desert, I don't know, 50, 60, I don't know how many years. Mm. Um, but one, what I know, that I carried that blood because they didn't give up. Mm. Never, never give up. Never give up because then you're not going to find out what happens. So that curiosity that kept me alive too, and not to allow anyone to murder my spirit ever. That's what I hope, that you will also become a good parent to you and reclaim your true self that we usually give up. We give up our genuine self to fit the family dynamics. Like my son-in-law got the Nobel Prize in economics in 2003. And then I, I went uh, to Europe and I was uh, celebrating. And I did some research that most of our Nobel Prize winners are either firstborn children or only children. So if you're a firstborn child and you marry a firstborn, you may have some power struggle, struggle because you have two bosses. That, does that fit anybody? Mm. Your family? No? Mm -hmm. For sure. And Kissinger um, sure. is, you know, a peacemaker. And usually middle children, I was told, are peacemakers, they want everybody to get along with everybody else. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That would fit. But the youngest, the youngest, <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell it to you. Mm. The youngest children we call charming manipulators. Ooh. Ooh. How do you like them apples? I do yeah. like, I'm the oldest, and I only have one younger sister, and she is very charming. I, I, I guess she was a little bit of a manipulator, but I think we all are to some extent. But that's funny. Yeah, isn't it? it I, is. and I, I was too, because when my father was playing billiards, I would go and ask him for money. And, and he wanted yes, to show off that of he's such a generous person. I couldn't do that with my mother. She, <laughs> she was much more practical, what you need it for. And, that, uh, you know, just a very different way of looking at things. That's really funny. That's why we call men thick-headed. Yes. Because they always want to understand everything. Yes. 
They wow. go into their heads right away. I want to understand. I want to understand. I don't ever know how to understand why my mother was taken to the gas chamber. That word mm. just doesn't fit at all. Mm. Mm. Yeah, don't try to figure things out. I think we do what's humanly possible and then hand it over to God. Yes. The final chapter of the gift, there's no forgiveness without rage. And you talk right. about the prison of not forgiving. And also the final pages of the choice, you talked about not about being invited to speak to 600 army chaplains on forgiveness in Berkestaden. Yes. The Bavarian retreat where Hitler and the SS officers planned much of the atrocities that they committed when you wanted to turn back due to the pain of the past. It was your husband who invited you. Welcome it, welcome it, welcome it. And you stayed. You stayed at the hotel where the diplomats and ambassadors stayed. You slept in Joseph Goebbels' bed. You walked to the destroyed remnants of Berghof, which was Hitler's home, and you mm. categorically forgave. A few um, moments in The Gift, page 177, you talk about how forgiveness isn't something we do for the person who's hurt us. It's something we do for ourselves yeah. so that we're no longer victims or prisoners of the past so we can stop carrying the burden that harbors nothing, by the way, nothing but pain. And you speak about this misconception about forgiveness. Is It is. Yeah, it's the way we make peace with someone who has harmed us is to say, I'm done with that person. Which, because yeah, tell us. If you live in hate right now, you're still a prisoner. Every moment is precious now. I don't take anything for granted. If you take me to a restaurant and you leave food on your plate, I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to eat it or take it home. You know, sometimes we don't appreciate what we have until um, until we don't have it anymore. So I am, um, my daughter always tells me, Mom, it's okay. It's okay not to eat up everything. And my grandson is here right now. <laughs> I, I, I made some Hungarian goulash, and I'm looking at it to be sure that he doesn't leave anything, any morsel on, on the plate. The best way I can put it, that part of me was left in Auschwitz. Yes. And I call yes. it my cherished wound. Yes. And, and I have a very special place in my heart. And, uh, and I think it's because of that that I am here today, yes. that I was able to experience suffering and became the survivor and never the victim mm. of anything or anyone at mm. any time. So mm. I'm going to say God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. I thank you. Call me anytime and we'll just have a little girl talk. I will. Thank you so very much, Dr. Eager. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. I do love you. Thank God you. bless. God bless. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. 
If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.